The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book three, Hunger Season. Chapter 14, Contact. If we're going to keep taking Tin Man on the road, we might as well put wheels on him. Martin set the gas fire beside the road. Maybe we should just make a trailer for him and the generator, Dustin suggested. He and Judy set the generator next to Tin Man. At least we don't have to carry it all the way, Judy scraped for a silver lining. I'm sure glad Jen agreed to take us to Walter's. That's after the meeting, Martin reminded her. Judy rolled her eyes. I know, I know. I'm excited for another chance to work with Walter's equipment, but having to sit through a whole town meeting first? Well, you could stay with Jen and the horses. Like that's such an upgrade? Well, your choice, Martin said. I could stay outside and keep her company, Susan offered. I'm only coming along for the trip to Walter's, too. Martin thinks I can help them with their plans. Oh, here she comes now, Dustin announced. Jen pulled her buckboard over so that the tailgate was near the driveway. Martin and Dustin hefted Tin Man up. Judy and Susan lifted the generator up. "'What the heck is this?' Martin half-shouted. He ran his hands along the sideboards, like a father discovering his teen driver's first scratch. His fingers traced around two jagged holes in the sideboards. "'Um, yeah, that,' Jen sounded like a teen admitting to her first scratch. "'We ran into a little trouble coming back from Nutfield.' "'Trouble, you think?' These are bullet holes. Are, are you okay? Uh, what about Candace? Uh, she was with you, right? I'm fine, Jen said. Candace is okay, too, although she freaked out a lot of the time. Just kept saying, ruffians, ruffians. I'll tell you about it on the way to the meeting. We really need to get going. Okay, we're going, Martin said the moment the buckboard moved. What happened? Oh, the trading down in Nutfield was okay. People didn't have much of anything worth trading for. I mean, how many pairs of socks does somebody really need? We stayed with my cousin in Upper Village and tried trading over a couple of days. I did get some cans of veggies and dry beans, mostly because I didn't think the guy had a clue how to cook them. I traded for a kerosene lamp and some other incidentals. I'm not sure Nutfield is worth the trip. So where did the bullet holes come in? Martin asked. I wasn't coming back with much, Jen continued. But the ruffians figured I had something. They tried to hold us up. Right there in Nutfield? Has, has the place gone that feral? Oh, it wasn't right in town, although in town Nutfield felt like the wrong side of L.A. No, the ruffians were on the north side of town. There's a little cluster of houses along the highway, after G&F Farms. The streets of Coleman and Prairie. Know them? Martin furrowed his brow for a moment. Uh, just before you get to the top of that hill with the four-way intersection? If I recall, that's some old split levels and ranches, a uh, development from the 60s that never expanded. That's the spot. 
The guy I got the lamp from was telling me how the town of Nutfield is trying to solve their crime problem. They ship off all of their criminals to that little development. Sort of a penal colony or something. Penalty of death if they're caught in town again, or something like that. The town rigged up some chain-link fence around it and posts a couple of guards, or so I was told. When we went by, I didn't see any guards. One of the residents, she used air quotes, jumped out from behind a big tree and tried to grab the horse's bridles. Huh, well, let me tell you, Peaches does not like sudden grabbing. She reared up and knocked him down. I whipped the team to take off, which they were happy to do. Candace was freaking out about ruffians and holding on for dear life. <laughs> Nearly lost her over the back of the seat. Another ruffian shot at us from the side road as we went by. A couple chased us on foot. Candace sure screams a lot. I shot back at them with my revolver. I don't think they were expecting that. Made them pause. By that time, we were down the hill and around the curve. All the way home, Candace kept ranting about how violence like that would not happen if everyone was getting proper meals. I think she just couldn't fathom being attacked. So I guess taking South Road to Nutfield is just off the table now, Martin said. Got that right, Jen agreed. I'm not sure if Nutfield is worth the trip anyhow. Maybe Harstead will be better, or, or Redmond. Well, here we are at Town Hall. Who's going to help feed and water the horses, hmm? Judy had the look of a doomed prisoner. It's got to be better than a bunch of old people going blah, blah, blah. I can stay with you, too, offered Susan. What, and share all this joy? Oh, it won't be that bad, said Jen with a scold. After the water, I can show you how the tack is all rigged up. It's really pretty fascinating. Good stuff to know nowadays. Besides, I think Peaches likes you. Oh, great, Judy sighed. I'm making friends. No need to keep me company, she said to Susan. Go and enjoy the old people. Susan shrugged a nonverbal whatever, but kept a stern poker face. While climbing the steps to the auditorium, Susan whispered that she would sit someplace else, not next to him. Martin nodded that he understood. The meeting appeared to have already started. Two men stood before the selectman's table, waving their arms and shouting. "'You can't just do nothing about him!' ranted the older man. He was thin and looked to be in his early seventies. He had baggy green pants cinched tight. Short rations were starting to show on many people. "'He's been stealing my firewood!' "'I have not,' countered the other man. He stood a foot taller, thirty years younger, and a hundred pounds heavier. "'You've been breaking into my shed. You think I wouldn't notice stuff missing? I want my saw back, and right now.' "'I don't have your stinking saw.' "'Calm down, you two. Landers raised his voice. "'You've gotten along as neighbors for ten years.' "'Times are different now,' said the older man. We need every stick of our firewood. He's just getting greedy. He's got plenty of his own firewood already. He's just trying to cover up for his stealing. I want the police chief to check out my shed. He'll see proof. I want that old man put on trial for burglary. If you guys don't deal with him, I will. The younger man menaced the older man. The older man refused to cower. Chief Berg stood between them. 
Okay, okay, Landers held his hands up. What if we have Chief Berg go check things out after this meeting, okay? If we find evidence of a crime, we'll take legal steps, okay? Will you two have a seat, yeah, preferably on different sides? The two men glared at each other around Berg. Both backed away slowly. Their wives pulled them by the arm to find seats on the opposite sides of the rows of chairs. Lander sighed in relief. He had called the meeting to order. Berg gave his report, such as it was, on how little they had learned about the barn burner. Murmurs of discontent rippled through the crowd. They wanted the culprit caught. The names of several suspects were muttered. Neighbors suspected neighbors. Um, well, Landers was eager to change the topic. How about if we hear what Walter has for news, eh? Uh, Walter? Ah, uh, sure. Walter stood and faced the group. My contacts along the border report increased activity by mass police and guard. Are they going to come up here in force? Someone asked from the back. I don't think so. Roadblocks have been beefed up and some patrols have been spotted in the woods. Those patrols must have had new orders or to be more assertive. They've taken a few shots at our folks watching them. Still, they haven't been crossing the border. Some of you may have caught Boston Bob's broadcasts. You'll notice how he was emphasizing how safe life was in Canton, Boston. Never mind that Bob always paints a rosy picture of Canton life. He was also talking about how wild and dangerous life was outside the fences. He talked about increased security to keep us riffraff from contaminating their roses and clover. Well, he didn't actually say roses and clover, by the way. That was my words. It was a lot shorter than Bob's. Anyhow, you probably heard about some guy in mass trying to crash the border down in Methuen. Several heads nodded. Bob did seem to have an audience. They said they stopped that guy but I think they're worried that there might be more. Martin smiled. Walter knew the real story, but was playing along with the Fed's spin to keep Malcolm incognito. I don't think they're massing to attack us, Walter continued. From the sound of things, they don't have quite enough manpower to beef up the roadblocks. There's no extra to be mountain attacks. After Walter's news update, Landers announced the town policy for salvaging fire-damaged homes. Several people expressed interest in becoming salvagers. One of the people who had been constructing Clyde's World War II memorial asked if he could salvage it for the wood. He was the only one of the workers present, so he was granted permission. Someone asked about Clyde, not so much out of concern as suspicion. Landers heard, indirectly, that the family was scraping by on what food they had stored, collectively. Clyde was in the same boat as everyone else. Martin noticed some sinister smiles of schadenfreude in the audience. One of Clyde's initiatives was actually working out. Three of the town companies had integrated mounted patrols. Bell Hill had several horses and men accustomed to rough trail riding. North Pond had two horses equipped— Jen was working on training two riders for the Wilson Hill Company. Martin wondered what the Stockman Hill Company would do. No one in their group had horses, and he hadn't ridden in years. After all of the town business was concluded, setting up for the trading session was carried on with less enthusiasm. It seemed that there was less and less to trade for, so little motivation to rush. 
Walter didn't bring any of his hidden stash this time. Well, let's get cracking, Walter said. Not a lot of time before. Yeah, well, it's it's time. Uh, just a sec. Martin lingered, looking for a man from Carrollton Orchards. He brought three 12-gauge shells with him to trade for a gallon of their cider. The Simmons household consumed the last gallon in just a few days. It was a morale booster. Sorry, said the Carrollton man. He was tall and thin and looked a bit like a young Abe Lincoln. Many of the young men were starting to resemble Abe Lincoln. We traded away the last gallon a minute ago. We only brought two. We had those bottled last week. Yeah, we can't bottle any more. Oh, why not? asked Martin. I thought you had those two big vats yet. The man looked like a doctor trying to avoid delivering bad news. Yeah, I'm afraid they've gone bad. Oh, what do you mean, gone bad? It's turning hard, said the tall man in a whisper. Fermenting. Nutritional value is gone once it starts fermenting, and the last thing this town needs is handing out hard cider. Already got some tempers flaring. It'll be better for everyone just to pour it on the ground. Oh, whoa, don't do anything rash. Well, I agree, alcohol would be dangerous nowadays. The temptation to try and drown one's troubles and drink is strong. In fact, I wouldn't tell anyone else that it's fermenting. Maybe just stick with the gone bad as what's happened. Well, then why keep it? Because maybe you can turn it into vinegar instead, Martin said. I'll check with my wife. I don't think she's made vinegar, but she knows someone in town who does. They'll have the mother of vinegar. You can add it to the vats once the sugars have become all alcohol. If the power stays off long term, people will need that vinegar to preserve some of their harvest. It'd be a shame just to let a resource like that get poured onto the ground. Let it go all hard. Then add the mother and make vinegar. Well, as cool as it's been, said the tall man, it'll take a couple of months to finish fermenting. Well, we're in no hurry, said Martin. There won't be anything to preserve for a longer time. Well, I've got to run. Just don't pour it out yet. Until I can check around, okay? The man nodded reluctantly. Martin, Susan, Judy, and Walter all climbed into Jen's buckboard and headed for Walnut Hill. En route, Walter explained, mostly to Judy, how he needed to use his big transmitter to reach the special contact that Malcolm told him about. The distance was great, so were the chances of being overheard. To remedy that, Walter planned to use his encryptor box. When he said such boxes were not quite legal, it piqued Judy's curiosity. Walter spent most of the ride explaining to her how it worked. The distant contact had arranged to get the same model. Walter managed to get the encryption key, code, to the contact, too, by breaking it down in disguised pieces. They conducted a successful test the day before Christmas. Once at their house on Walnut Hill, Walter showed Judy how the digital encryptor was hooked up. Malcolm filled Martin in on what his contact said. The plan had been for the trucks to travel across upstate New York, collecting and sheltering in several staging areas. Well, how would they keep 50 trucks hidden while driving across Fed-controlled territory? The task seemed impossible to Martin. Dad, the Feds don't have the resources to force all of upstate New Yorkers into cantons. Several areas are quite resistant, actually. 
The feds tend to ignore the holdouts as malcontents and not worth their time. They're too busy trying to keep the lid from blowing off New York City. Still, 50 trucks. How could someone not see that and report it? Yeah, different routes. Yeah, one truck at a time. You'd be surprised how well some of the coalition aid is received up there. The Canton system sends all its resources to the urban centers. I was part of a team setting up one of them staging areas. The locals were more than happy to turn a blind eye or even help out for some food. After the staging in New York, the plan was to enter Vermont, an unguarded border, then snake down into Mass. No roadblocks on the Vermont Mass border either. I was supposed to gather intel on the last leg, Route 2, and scout out the best places to cut back north. That is, until I blew my cover. Yeah, hush, you two, scolded Walter. It's almost time. We agreed to come on at 17 past the hour. Just to pick an odd time, we'll need to limit our transmissions to five or ten minutes. Yeah, chances are, no one will be listening on this frequency. Yeah, but if they are, most amateurs will think it's just loud static. Folks in the know, however, will be able to tell we're transmitting encrypted. Yeah, not much chance of them decrypting, yeah, but just knowing that someone's transmitting encrypted will make them all nosy. Yeah, we don't want to be on long enough to get triangulated. Walter's trying to say that there won't be much time to talk, Judy translated. I was getting to that, Walter scolded. Anyhow, it's sixteen after. Showtime in one minute. Yeah, the batteries have been charging for over an hour. That and your Jenny's output ought to be enough to drive my big transmitter for a while. Walter adjusted his knobs. Judy watched, fascinated, as if expecting pyrotechnics. After a few moments of velvety static, a voice buzzed through with a kazoo-like tone. Dante calling. Orpheus here, Walter said into his mic. Validated. Bridge confirmed by operative on the ground. Serviceable. Everyone in the room smiled at each other. However, routes to the bridge now blocked. Guard and state police in Greenfield. Roadblocks over bridges. Operative reports, new patrol camp on Vermont border. Route to your bridge, scouted by operative, is now blocked. No suitable alternatives. So go over the hills, Susan said, mostly to herself. Uh, hold on, Dante, Walter said. Yeah, what do you mean? he asked Susan. There's fire trails and logging trails all over the hills west of the bridge. I explored them as a kid. They crisscross for miles, all the way back to I-91. I know. I've been on them. They work for logging trucks. They'll work for food trucks. Tell them to use those trails instead. Uh, Dante, uh, intel here is that there are logging trails west of the bridge, linking back to regular roads. There was a long silence, filled only with soft buzzing static, interrupted by occasional pops and cracks. No time for operative to confirm alternative route. He must continue on to Keene. Trucks must leave staging area soon. Fed patrols more active. The trails are there, I tell you, Susan insisted. I even looked at them a year ago. 
Dante, a source of intel on trails, is present here, insists that trail routes over the hills are valid. After another long pause, the speaker buzzed. Have your source travel to scene with our man M. M knows comms and codes. Must confirm alternative route in four days or may have to abandon Longbow. What? Martin blurted out. They want Susan to travel out there and show them the route? Uh, in person? Susan walked slowly down the dark hallway from her room, her head down. She stood before the dining room table, without making eye contact with those seated there. A single oil lamp, turned low to economize on oil, sat at the table. No one was rushing her to speak. They knew it was a tough choice. I've decided to go, she announced slowly. No, really? Are you sure? Aren't you scared? Yes, really, no, I'm not sure, and yes, I am scared, Susan said. But the town needs more food. They say they need my help. Margaret ushered Susan into a seat at the end of the table. But it could be very dangerous out there, she said. Margaret had a protective streak. We don't need extra food that badly. Susan looked up. I heard you talking to Martin. You said you only have enough to last until the end of January. Almost everyone in town is in the same boat. I hear them talking. This longbow thing is a chance for everyone to get some extra so they can make it to spring. It's a long shot, but it's a chance. How could I say no? How long will you be gone? Judy asked. Susan glanced at Martin wordlessly, invoking a long discussion they had on the way home from Walters. It was possible that Susan, Malcolm, and the operative could get captured by a mass patrol. It was possible that they could get into mass okay, but beefed-up border security would prevent anyone returning. Malcolm and the operative were planning to continue west to their homes in the coalition states. Could Susan find her way back to Cheshire on her own? Would she stay with the rebels in mass? No one knew how things would turn out. Martin decided not to focus on the pessimistic side. Susan was fully aware of it. We can drive them to Keene in Charles's truck. It'll be a day or two's journey on foot from Keene down to Northfield. They'll have to evade any patrols along the border. Then they'll have to scout the trails while still avoiding any patrols. Even then, it could be a one-way deal. Martin glanced at Susan. She had very sad eyes. They had discussed the risks. Okay, Judy said. Four days, then two days back. You could all wait for her to come back. She hadn't heard the words one way. Sometimes people simply don't hear what they don't want to hear. Uh, we can't wait for her. It hurt Martin to say the words. We suspect there's an information leak in Cheshire somewhere. If Tyler, Charles, Nick, and I were gone too long, it would arouse suspicion that something was up. Even if they don't know exactly what we're up to, they could get jumpy and cause double patrols or something and ruin everything. We figured if we were only gone a day, 
we wouldn't be missed. I, on the other hand, won't be missed, Susan said. That's not true, Judy rose to her defense. Thanks, but it is true. That's something I've wrestled with, even before this whole longbow thing. Other than someone to take a watch or carry in water, I don't do much for the household. You're good with the radio. Dustin is good at fixing things and electrical stuff. Carlos makes things out of wood. Susan gave a small wave toward Margaret. She and Anna are great cooks. Andy knows about edible plants. Martin, well, he's the glue holding you all together. But you... Besides, with one less mouth to feed, your supplies will last longer. If this longbow thing doesn't work, Susan looked back at the table. Sometimes one has to go for the sake of the rest. Martin's rationale for harvesting Gimpy returned to cut like a knife. But remember, Susan sat up straight and squared her shoulders. I'm not just going out there so your supplies will last longer. She tried to sound more upbeat. Ideally, I'm going to try to get you more. At least that is something I can do. Her attempt at cheer fell on stony ground. The darkness felt stifling. A soft and irregular chick-chock sound prevented total silence. At last, Margaret asked, First thing in the morning? Yes, said Martin. Best if we can get going before dawn. Dustin is over at the Hendricks now, filling in Tyler and Charles. Carlos and Lucas are chipping more fuel in the garage. We'll pick up Malcolm at Walter's and take back roads to avoid being seen. While we're gone, the rest of you have to pretend like I'm just out on patrol or something. Don't say where I'm gone, or that Susan isn't home, or anything. Margaret sighed in resignation. Well... If she's going on such a long trip, I'd better get some food ready for her to take. She lit the second oil lamp from the first one on the table and carried it into the kitchen. In her little circle of light, she started laying things out on the counter. I'll go get your clothes from the clothesline downstairs, announced Judy. You should be able to take whatever you want. And if you want anything of mine, sweaters, socks, whatever, just let me know. Judy lit a candle and walked downstairs. "'You're going to be traveling cross-country,' Martin said. "'You'll need some gear and a backpack. "'I'll go get my truck bag and meet you in your room. "'There's more gear in that white cabinet.' Uh, "'Here, you can use my black backpack,' Martin said. "'It used to be my range bag.' "'Couldn't I use your gray one?' she asked. "'Uh, I suppose so.' Martin pulled the backpack out of the closet. He knelt in front of the open white cabinet in Susan's room. She sat on the bed. Well, this is a nice lightweight tarp, he said. It can have a ton of uses. Remember that little lean-to we made on the way up here? You could rig up something like that. Oh, and here's a roll of paracord. I don't want to go, she said quietly. I like it here. Martin didn't want her to go either. Seeing her smile brought joy. Knowing she was safe brought peace. He didn't want to give up those things. And yet, she held the key to survival, perhaps for thousands of people. But I have to do this, she said. I know. 
He tried to focus on making sure she was as well equipped for her journey as he could. He handed her a compact sleeping bag to change the subject. This is good to temps to five below. No idea what you guys will find for shelter along the way. I can strap this to the bottom of the backpack. Here's some flatbread, Margaret announced. I cut it into strips and put them in this zippy bag. They'll be easier to eat that way. Thanks. How much room will she have for food? Margaret asked. Yeah, we'll just have to make room, Martin said. Figure on at least four days' worth. Malcolm and the other guys should have supplies that they were planning to use. Four days' worth of her own should give her a cushion. Oh, okay, I have some ideas. Margaret disappeared into the darkness. This is a water filter. Martin handed Susan a small cloth bag. Water's too heavy to carry all you need. You'll need to carry some with you, of course. Could I use your metal water bottle? She asked. Uh, I guess. It's still kind of dirty, though. He wiped the soot off with his fingers. That's okay. I like that bottle. You made coffee in it under the bridge. Oh, anyhow, as I was saying, uh, you don't want to carry a lot of water, so look for raw water wherever you are. You can use that filter directly, like a straw, or fill this bag with raw water and squeeze it through the filter into this other bag. Even though the filter is supposed to get all the nasties out, here are some purification tablets, one per liter. Let it sit for half an hour. I wish you could come with me, she half whispered. Martin settled back to sit on his feet. He wanted very badly to go with her, make sure nothing bad happened, keep her safe. He felt helpless, worried, and afraid for her. I wish I could, too. But you can't, she said. I know. There's Margaret. Margaret reappeared in the circle of light. Okay, I have some dried apples, fruit leather, and some jerky. Sorry, it's the boring flavor. The marinade recipe was a failure, but that's what we have left. Anyhow, try to eat at least two strips per day for your proteins. The bread won't last more than a couple of days. And here's a little bag of rice. You'll need to boil it, though. Boil. Martin pulled out a small mess kit from the cabinet. Well, then you'll need this. It's not much more than a shallow pot and a plate, but it's something. We can put a lot of little stuff inside it so it doesn't take up any extra room. But cooking reminds me that you'll probably need to make a fire. You remember what I showed you about making fires? Susan nodded. Is your little lighter still in the front pocket? Uh, it is, but here are some waterproof matches and a few fuel cubes to help. Things tend to be wet in the winter. Judy brought up an armload of clothes and dumped them on the bed. They sorted through the pile, picking out the best items to wear and the best to have as backup. The little gray backpack soon looked plump. Uh, here's a little compass and a map of the area, Martin said. You drew this? That must have taken some time, she said. You knew I would decide to go? I just wanted to be ready, in case you did. The other guys may have their maps, but you might get separated from the others. But I'm not good with maps. Pfft, you're better than you think. You used them for your patrol routes. Just remember what I showed you about using the compass. I didn't have time to get too crazy with details on this map. But it's got all of the roads that were on the Atlas page. I marked where Camp Wanamaker is. 
If you get separated, go there. Byron Davis was the camp director. Walter told me he's still there, hiding some rebels or something. Tell him you know Dustin. That'll get you in. Okay. Susan studied the map with a furrowed brow. Travel always looks so easy on maps. There's a flashlight in the side pocket. I restocked the first aid kit in the front. You'll need a good knife, too. He began rummaging in the cabinet. I have mine. She pulled the folding blade out of her pants pocket. Oh, right. <laughs> the one from the carjacker. He smiled at the memories. Yeah, you earned that one. Uh, maybe I should send you down there with a shovel. Oh, stop it. She smacked his shoulder and tried to suppress a smile. He savored the twinkle in her eyes. Still, you should have a fixed blade, too. Better for woodwork. This one is simple, but it'll do you well. Wear the sheath on your belt so it's always handy. Okay, but I'm keeping this one in my pocket. And you'll need to take a gun, too. And don't try to argue the point. I'm not arguing. Oh, well, good. I'd like you to carry something with a bit more beef. But you haven't practiced with the high point. The others are bigger still. I like the little revolver, she said. And you're pretty good with it. Better to pack you with what you're good with. Here's a box of ammo for it. I'll put that in this other side pocket. Hopefully you'll never need any of this. He didn't want to let himself picture her getting caught in a forest firefight with mass patrols. I sure hope I don't need this. She flipped open the cylinder. I'm only supposed to show them the trails through the hills. She pushed down on the top of the backpack. I'll need to make some room for this. She picked up her jar of olives from the nightstand. She smiled a sad-eyed smile at him. I think I see him, announced Dustin from the window. I saw a little flashlight beam. They must be picking up Mr. Oldham now. This is it. Susan said, taking a deep breath. She adjusted the backpack straps on her shoulders. Judy, Anna, and Lucas gave Susan big hugs goodbye. Andy tried a fist bump, but Susan still hadn't got the timing right. To Martin's surprise, Margaret gave Susan a tight hug, too, and told her to be careful. A faint blue glow marked the eastern horizon. Night was still in the air. The cold stung uncovered cheeks and noses. Dustin and Carlos loaded up the extra woodchip fuel into Charles's truck. Sound carried great distances in the cold, dense air, so everyone whispered and tried not to bang things around. Martin held the rear door open for Susan to climb in. As she slid in, Malcolm gave her a quick look-over and said, Hey, dear, I don't think I had a, such an attractive traveling companion in a long time. Martin caught Susan by the wrist and tugged. She understood and backed out of the truck. Martin leaned in close to Malcolm and half-whispered, And I haven't killed a man in a couple of weeks. What? Oh, hey, hold on, man. I was just saying good morning. No, you weren't. Susan is someone important to me, and not your companion. Understand? Uh, sure. I thought you were married. I am, but that doesn't make Susan one of your Canton women to be plied with a case of tuna. Okay, uh, sure. 
and she can shoot groups no larger than your eye at ten yards. Martin pointed his finger uncomfortably close to Malcolm's eye. He backed away reflexively. Martin had exaggerated Susan's marksmanship, but the point needed emphasis. Don't give her a reason to show you. Uh, no, no, I, I didn't mean anything. Right, Martin muttered sarcastically. Your job is to help her mark that trail. I have people on the ground where you're going. That was an exaggeration. Martin knew the camp director only lightly. Dustin and Lindsay knew Byron better. Nonetheless, Malcolm needed to feel less anonymous and free. They'll report back to me. Charles had rigged up a tarp in the stake bed to mitigate the wind chill. Nick was huddled down deep in his coat and scarf. Only a thin slit remained between cap and scarf for his eyes. He watched his quarter. Martin didn't need a windbreak as much. He was generating plenty of anger heat internally. The die was cast. Susan was going to aid Operation Longbow. It was bad enough that she was headed across country in late December. Past potentially hostile patrols, having to deal with a lecherous creep, too, was simply not fair. Tyler opted to cross the Merrimack via the bridge south of Nashua. He was right that it would have less traffic. Dawn broke behind them as they made their way up Route 101. The new highway skirted around many of the town centers, so they saw no one. At Peterborough, there were improvised roadblocks. Tyler suggested that everyone keep their guns hidden and look non-threatening. Something about the barricade seemed more defensive than like a trap. It turned out that the residents had been pestered by FEMA men in black vehicles periodically. Charles's old Ford and his stake bed, bullet holes, and duct tape windshield didn't look like FEMA equipment. Charles traded some of his fish for an armful of firewood in case they needed more chips. The men at the barricades had heard of Charles and his truck. It was a brief moment of rock star fame which Charles enjoyed. While they were stopped in Peterborough, Susan quietly asked Martin, What did you say to Malcolm? He's hardly said a word this whole time. Well, that's good. I told him you'd shoot him in the eye if he got out of line with you. Oh, she tipped her head to peek through the window. He did have that look I was telling you about. Yeah, watch out for him, Susan. I don't know this Charon guy at all. Maybe he's okay, maybe not. Watch out for both of them. Don't stand for anything shifty. If you have to, shoot him. He expected her to be shocked at his suggestion, but she wasn't. Instead, her eyes narrowed in resolve. The trip farther west was uneventful. Martin was glad for the tarpa's windbreak. The cold slipstream made his eyes water when he stood up to feed more chips into the gasifier. Miles before reaching Keene, Tyler began to slow down. He spotted the first of the small blue ribbons that he had been told to look for along the side of the road. At an intersection just south of Marlborough, he spotted a yellow ribbon. Yellow for left turn, orange for right turn. A quarter mile after the turn, he stopped in front of an old farmhouse close to the road. They had reached the rendezvous point. Everyone got out and took up watch positions around the truck. They were told to wait for Charon to arrive. 
Susan stood by the rear wheel, Martin at the back bumper. She sidestepped closer. Martin could tell she wanted to say something, so he moved to the corner, too. I heard what you were saying to Margaret about Joni, she said quietly. Oh? Yes. You were in the dining room. I had my bedroom door open. I was pretty angry at that Joni woman, the way she would hang on you and stuff. But you were right about her. She confused relief with joy. Oh, and, well, something deeper. Yeah. Martin wondered where she was going with this topic. For a long time after I heard what you said, I wondered, uh, was I like Joni? You have looked a little more glum than just your usual poker face lately. I was pretty upset. I guess it showed, huh? I did a lot of soul searching. Someone tapped twice on the truck. Everyone looked around. A man emerged cautiously from the woods on the opposite side of the road. Malcolm and the man met in the road and exchanged phrases. It was Charon. He was of average height, dressed in a gray patterned camo, and AR hung across his belly. He had the rough features of a man who spent a lot of time outdoors. Gray hair showed beneath his cap. He looked to be in his fifties, old enough to have daughters or granddaughters. That gave Martin some comfort. After some handshakes and introductions, everyone moved around to the front of the truck for a quick briefing. As they gathered, Susan nudged Martin to get his attention. I decided I am not like Joni. She said it as a challenge. So, I know Malcolm, said Charon. Which one are you are we taking down there? Me? Susan raised her hand. What? I didn't say the scout was a woman. Ah, oh, jeez. Martin secretly took some solace in Charon's cranky attitude. Better that he was unhappy about guiding Susan than too happy about it, like Malcolm. She knows the landscape down there, said Martin. She's who you're guiding. Charon grumbled as he spread a map on the hood of the truck. He traced the route that they had to follow to get to Northfield, then across the river. The day was half spent already, so they'd have to camp overnight near a small lake in East Swansea. The next day would be a long hike, mostly through the woods, to avoid detection. Think you're up to that? Charon asked Susan. He was not pleased that the person he was to guide was a woman. I've done more, she said firmly. While Malcolm put on his backpack and checked his gear, Martin helped Susan with her backpack. Over her shoulder, she whispered, For a long time, I wanted to kiss you. Martin felt a cold wave flash through him. That was a mental image he had never allowed himself. He didn't know what to say. When I decided to go on this trip, she continued, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to do so. A goodbye kiss. No one would think much of it. Martin still didn't answer. Well, what would he say? He continued cinching the strap snug. But then I remembered the movie curse of the goodbye kiss. You know, like in war films, when the guy kisses his girlfriend before going off to war, you just knew he was doomed. He was never coming back. She looked into his eyes. I want to come back, you know. So part of me decided that I shouldn't risk it. Okay, said Sharon loudly. Time to move out. We've got a lot of ground to cover before dark. Susan turned suddenly and grabbed Martin in a tight hug. He was taken by surprise. She kissed his cheek slowly. 
Her lips felt all the warmer on his wind-chilled cheek. Another cold wave flashed through him. "'Come on!' hollered Charon impatiently. The three of them ran across the road in a single file. Charon led, Susan in the middle, followed by Malcolm. They ran up the embankment and disappeared into the woods.' 